Thank you for joining our podcast, Sounding Off with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there. You'll get first look at all of our upcoming guests, as well as our most recent podcasts and our most recent op-eds. And you can email me at Kim at Kim Munson dot com as well. I am thrilled and honored to be talking with Professor John Eastman. Uh, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Kim, for having me. I've been on your show before, but it's delightful to be back with you. Well, we have a lot to talk about. And I have mentioned this before, but I used to hear you regularly on the Hugh Hewitt Show. And I was on city council for my community from 2012 to 2016. And there was this real push to... Um, to put in a southeast light rail extension. And I was was concerned about it, first of all, because there's such a push to use tax dollars to get people out of their their cars, which I love freedom of mobility, to be able to go where you want to, when you want to, because I think that's inherent in everyday people being able, able to thrive and prosper. But what had happened is the city had applied for a New Starts grant and this was during the Obama administration because the Obama administration was trying to get light rail into all of these different communities. And inherently, I didn't feel good about that. But it wasn't until I heard you talk about the general welfare clause in the Constitution that I understood that it's not really fair to either have our neighbors or our kids and grandkids pay for something that was only going to benefit the region. Would you like to comment on that? Sure. And this is one of my uh, major areas of scholarly focus for the last 20 years, uh, correctly understanding the spending clause of the Constitution. Congress today thinks it means we can spend on whatever we want if we think it's good for the country or good for the community. But, but the founders had a very specific and precise language. The power to spend is to pay the national debts, to provide for the common defense, and the general welfare. Those two adjectives, common and general, meant the collective welfare, the collective military defense. It didn't mean the regional spending or the local police. And this was extremely important because otherwise you run the risk of some majorities being able to tax other parts of the country for their own benefit. Uh, and the ability to tax was constrained because the taxes had to be uniform. And the ability to spend was constrained because the federal government only had the power to spend for the common purposes, not for the local purposes. Or to, or to put it more precisely, you know, why should folks in Rhode Island pay for the light rail in Denver? Exactly. And why should Denver folks pay for or, you know, uh, some palm tree widening project in Long Beach, California. Right. And and I cited that when I uh, voted no on that. And it was a four to one vote. It, it passed. But I really appreciated it because it, you were able to solidify for me why it was so important to take that stand on that. And we need to educate, I think, more and more of our well, our citizens, as well as our elected representatives on what this means. So just wanted to, that's not really what we're going to talk about, because you've been very busy. <laughs> it's been quite a roller coaster the last couple of months, I will say. It really has been. Let's jump into your relationship with President Trump. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, through most of November, I was down with COVID. I had been asked to um, uh, 
work with the Pennsylvania legal team uh, the weekend after the election. Um, and that didn't go anywhere. And uh, But I was there long enough to catch COVID. And so for the next three weeks, I was down with high fevers and coughs and all of that. I come out of that, and the, the election litigation is a bit scattershot and chaotic. Uh, and the president called me directly and asked me to represent him uh, in uh, trying to find a way to get these cases to the Supreme Court. And the first case that ends up getting there was the Texas versus Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan case, the original action. And that was significant because you didn't need to bring it in the trial courts first and then have hearings and then get to the Court of Appeals and then to the Supreme Court. States are allowed to ask the Supreme Court directly as an original matter to take on any uh, controversies between two states or more. And so Texas did that, and the president and I agreed that this would be a good avenue for him to intervene to get all of these cases heard at the same time. The issues are overlapping and very similar. Heard at the same time by the Supreme Court in a timely way so that long before the electoral votes are cast or the uh, uh, the electoral votes are opened in the joint session of Congress on January 6th, we could have some resolution of the illegalities that occurred. So Texas filed their case on uh, on uh, December 7th. I filed the motion to intervene on behalf of the president on December 9th. Uh, all hell broke loose at the University of Colorado as a result, mm-hmm. uh, but then the Supreme Court re- declined to take the case uh, two days later on December 11th. It was at that point that I then, um, okay, well, they're going to make us do this piecemeal. Uh, uh, I filed the cert petition uh, challenging three decisions of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that authorized alteration of state election law in violation of what I believe of, uh, it was in violation of Article 2 of the federal constitution. That Article That section of the federal constitution says the power to decide the manner for choosing electors, presidential electors, is vested in the legislatures of the state. And here you had state election officials, not legislatures, and the state Supreme Court, not legislature, altering the manner of choosing electors by changing the election laws. And those election laws were put in place by the state legislature to minimize the risk of fraud in what everybody acknowledges is the part of the election system that is most susceptible to fraud, which is mail-in balloting. And I always say that it seems like the radical regressives, activists, they're playing long ball because these changes were made throughout 2020, correct? They were. And in, and in states like Nevada, where the Democrats had control of the state legislature, they were made properly uh, in line with constitutional authority. The legislature did it. But in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, where they didn't have control of the state legislature, they just did it unilaterally. And that was the federal constitutional violation. In both instances, I think this loosening of the of the the checks, the validation on the mail-in ballot process uh, created the, the huge potential for fraud. But in the states where they didn't do it through legislative pronouncement, um, it was unconstitutional just in the procedures that were used. And, and that, that opened the door for fraud. How many fraudulent votes came in through that open door is very hard to ascertain. Because once you separate the ballot from the validation envelopes, you now no longer know how that person voted. But if somebody submits a ballot that has no signature or that the signature is so 
uh, unlike the signature that's on the voter registration card as to be pretty strong evidence that somebody else submitted that ballot, those ballots should not have been counted. And we've got tens of thousands of these of these kind of ballots. In Wisconsin, for example, uh, they, they, they go a different route. You know, not only do you have to validate the voter's uh, information, but the voter has to uh, provide a voter identification. Um, seems like a good idea. It seems like a good idea uh, with the mail-in ballot. Uh, well, the two most heavily Democrat counties uh, published on their website, the, the county clerk's website, that um, uh, there's an exception to providing your voter ID if you are indefinitely confined. And they said, you know, if you're afraid of going out of your house because of COVID, we're going to pretend like you're indefinitely confined. Completely contrary to the law. Uh, but then, but then that meant they were, they just gave a signal. Don't bother sending in your voter ID, uh, mandatory voter ID with your, with your ballot. We're going to count it anyway. Now, how many of those were legitimate ballots and they could have sent the voter ID in? what they wanted, you know, maybe a lot. But how many of them were people taking advantage of the fact they didn't have to match with a voter ID, the name on the ballot? We have no idea. Um, But that opened the door for fraud that calls into question the validity of the election. And that's why I think the American people are so angry, because these kind of things were never honestly looked at. Um, uh, and, and, and resolved. And as long as that remains pending out there, there's going to be a significant portion of the population that rightly calls into question the validity of the election. If the election, if I were elected into office and there were questions about the validity of that, I would want to go through this process to ascertain that, yes, it was a fair election and that every legal vote that was counted and illegal votes were not counted and i think i think there's a big portion of america that would agree with that i think that there is a small portion really these these kind of radical regressives that have been pushing this forward i've always said that if an idea cannot stand on its merit we talk about freedom versus force force versus freedom socialism ultimately comes down to force If something is a good idea, you should not have to force it. If a candidate is a good candidate with good ideas, you shouldn't have to um, hide hide what the ideas exactly, are. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, and early on, I I published a piece that said Joe Biden should welcome this because his his um, his having a mandate for having legitimately earned the office will be undermined as long as these questions persist out there. Um, but instead of a transparent look at an investigation of the questions, there has been every effort. Uh, to thwart that. So subpoenas about looking at uh, forensic audits of the machines have been fought tooth and nail. Um, uh, the one the one county in Michigan where there was an audit of the machine, somebody in the wee hours of the night after the audit was authorized went in and deleted all the logs. So you can identify what the machine's capable of in an audit, but with the logs being deleted, you can't actually confirm where and when and by whom it actually occurred. And so how does that happen? How does somebody just go in? The, the 2018 logs are still there. The 2016 logs are still there. But the 2020 November election logs had been deleted. And, and, and so this, they, these are red flags. This suggests to me that, in fact, somebody knew there was nefarious conduct that occurred, and they were doing what they can to try and hide it. Um, similarly, in opposing subpoenas. 
um, uh, in in uh, in uh, in Fulton County, Georgia. Uh, one of the ways you confirm whether what we all saw on the video of, of mm-hmm. ballot suitcases full of ballots being pulled out in the wee hours of the night after observers had been sent home, and then being run through the machines three or four times. Now it's possible those were legitimate ballots. And it's possible that what we saw being run through three or four times was a machine error, and then they had to rerun them. But how do you tell whether that's what occurred or whether, in fact, there was fraud that occurred? You do it by a hand recount of those individual ballots. And yet Fulton County started shredding the ballots. Oh. Um, and and we had we you know private investigators who were watching caught them. The the truck the big you know one of these big eighteen wheel shredder trucks was then was then locked away in a warehouse. Uh, for safekeeping. The FBI was sent to take custody of it, but somebody at the Department of Justice ordered that they take in custody of it and then deliver it to the Secretary of State, who is allegedly knee-deep in the frauds. <laughs> so wow. these are the kind of things that ought to raise red flags and need to be fully investigated. One last thing people will say, you know, Dr. Eastman, look, it's been fully investigated. Ninety courts have looked at this, and not a single one has ever accepted any of the evidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times have you heard that? Well, we've put together a comprehensive list of all of the cases that have looked at it. And of the 90, I mean, the, the, the numbers keep changing as we get more information. But of the 90, roughly 82 um, were dismissed on procedural grounds without the court ever looking at the evidence. And of the remaining eight, which, you know, looked at only a sliver of, a le- of evidence in a particular case, six of the eight actually went in favor of Trump. So this false narrative that keeps putting at being put out there that, that Trump's claims are baseless because every single court that has looked at him has rejected him is just blatantly false. And you wonder why uh, there's such an effort to put out and reiterate and reaffirm and repeat over and over again something that is just so clearly demonstra- and demonstrably false. And that suggests to me that, in fact, they know that there's something nefarious that went on and they're doing everything they can to try and hide it. Okay, these 82 that were dismissed on procedural grounds. I had a a friend of mine, very thoughtful woman, uh, who's who's really questioning that. And I guess some people have said, oh, that those were uh, judges that were activist judges or whatever. What's your comments on that? Well, so 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 some are falsely uh, dismissed, in my view. Um, others others were properly dismissed. And so, one example: there's a long-standing Supreme Court doctrine, one I disagree with, but it's clearly established Supreme Court law um, that you have to have a particularized injury in order to have standing to bring a claim. If your injury is only, look, my vote was diluted in the same way that every other person's vote was diluted, you're not the right person to bring the case. Somebody has to have a particularized and discrete injury. The candidate has a discrete injury separate from just rank-and-file voters. A lot of those cases were brought by rank-and-file voters, some by lawyers trying to just get publicity. And they find a a voter, they bring a case, and within three days the case is dismissed because it was clearly without standing. Those are properly dismissed. Other cases, um, uh, there's a rule uh, when when, uh, I file a claim, particularly on election claims where the complaints in most instances have to be verified, which means somebody has to sign under penalty of perjury that all of the allegations in the complaint they believe to be true and have evidence to support them. Verified complaints. Um, They're typically met with a motion to dismiss. 
Now, procedurally, at the motion of dismiss stage, you're supposed to assume that all of the allegations in the complaint are true, not weighing the evidence and, and then say, and, but, and then the result is, even if those allegations are true, they don't meet the legal standard necessary, and then I can dismiss without the case going through the full hearing. Um, but in several of these instances on motions to dismiss, the court weighed the evidence and then said, I just don't find those allegations credible Ooh. without a hearing, right? And without an opportunity to actually put on the evidence and then dismiss them. And those kind of dismissals were improper. Okay. All right. And then you get, and then you get the, the, the crazy conundrum. Um, some of these election law changes occurred prior to the election and lawsuits were brought and they were dismissed on a doctrine called ripeness. The court said, well, until we get to the election, and we actually can see whether they comply with the law or these modifications, these illegal modifications of the law, your challenge is not ripe. It's not ready. We got to see if they've actually violate the law when they conduct the election. And then after the election, when they did violate the law in the conduct of the election, we brought the suit and the, and the judge says, you should have brought this before the election. You can't wait till your guy loses in order to bring the challenge. There's a doctrine called latches. You can't sit on your rights, except they didn't sit on their rights. They tried to fix this ahead of time. And so those two competing, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't type of judicial rule. So those are completely inappropriate. Even now, was the, this the same judge? In some instances, yes. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, you, you just, you don't want to scratch your head and say, really? Are you kidding me? So these are the kind of, uh, things that went on with some of the litigations. Now, that said, um, one of the other things I think important to talk about, when you're dealing with a complex set of legal issues, uh, election law is not uniform. It's different in every state. Um, and when, you know, in 20, in the year 2000, we had a couple of counties in Florida and every major lawyer in the country, including mm -hmm. me, I was down there on, on part of the legal team. I testified before the Florida legislature as well. Everybody was down there. All of the big firms on one side or the other were down there fighting it out in one particular state with one particular set of election laws. This one, we had a half a dozen contested states with vastly different election laws. And to, and to manage a complex litigation, multi-state litigation like that, you needed a big firm with the managerial skills, like a, a five-star general to control the whole battlefield to make sure inconsistent arguments are not being made, um, the logistical support to get all the documents together, the affidavits pulled together, and, and, and election law, it's, you know, an intense, uh, compressed time frame. Sure. Every single major law firm in the country was cowered out of taking on the representation on the Trump side. And and that just means that there was almost necessarily going to be pockets of lawyers in individual states, not election law specialists, not with that kind of comprehensive mm -hmm. either either uh, tactical support or managerial skills to manage something like this. And it's no surprise and there was a bit of a chaotic uh, range of cases that were filed. Mm -hmm. um, but but to get to the bottom of some of the key cases, like my case in Pennsylvania that the Supreme Court uh, denied just on uh, on uh, Monday, uh, February 22nd, um, and and the Wisconsin cases. Uh, these were cases that were extremely well developed. Uh, the state election officials, or in the case of Pennsylvania, state judicial officials, had quite clearly altered state election law without constitutional authority. How big 
uh, the amount of fraud that came into that door they opened as a result is hard to prove. But the fact that they violated those laws or altered those laws without their own constitutional authority is un- undisputed. Uh, three justices dissented from the denial of uh, taking those cases, Justice Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. And Justice Thomas's opinion in, in, in dissent from the di- denial, I think, is particularly important. We had an opportunity to confront this issue before the election, and the court refused. Um, now we have an opportunity when now that the dust is settled to confront these legal issues because they are inevitably going to be repeated again in future elections unless we weigh in and remind these unelected officials or non-legislative officials that they don't have the authority to alter the manner for choosing presidential electors. Um, and it just creates chaos and therefore uncertainty in the results. And that means the American people uh, are going to have trouble accepting the results. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's just something that cannot exist uh, with uh, with any expectation that we will have a stable transition of power, as we've seen. Well, it really undermines the uh, the constitutionality of these elections. It under, undermines our republic. And uh, I would really think that everybody would want to get to the bottom of this. The big question out there is, what about the other Trump appointees? Where were they on this decision? Well, uh, look, um, a couple of the Trump judges got some of these more frivolous suits, and they quite rightly dismissed them. Okay. All right. Um, They can't reach out and grab the good ones. They have to take the ones that come to them. Okay. All right. And uh, I think that I think that's true in almost every instance. Now, at the Supreme Court, I can't quite figure out what went on there. In in October, this was one of the earlier Pennsylvania cases um, that was brought by Jones Day before they withdrew from the representation. Jones Day is a very prominent and, and very good international law firm. Uh, uh, and they were the ones that brought the case about uh, the state Supreme Court altering the statutory deadline for returning right. absentee ballots. Um, that was brought on an emergency motion uh, in October. The Supreme this is before uh, after Ruth Ginsburg had died, but before Amy Coney Barrett was uh, confirmed. And so there were eight justices, and they split four to four on granting the emergency stay, which means it gets denied. Chief Justice Roberts joined with the liberal members of the court to vote that. But you had Thomas, Alito, uh, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh vote to grant the emergency application. Four votes. And it only takes four votes to grant cert, right? So they then filed a cert petition with a request for expedited consideration, that expedited consideration request was also denied. Uh, and then what we learned on Monday was the case itself, the, the petition for certiorari, the request to take the case, was denied, uh, and it was by a vote of five to three. And that meant Roberts plus the three liberals and one of the – and both of the other, you know, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, would not vote to grant. Now, maybe the argument that Kavanaugh switched his vote is because, well, that last one I voted to take it was prior to the election. Now that the election's been decided and we have a new president, it's moot. Except there's a very well-established uh, exception to mootness. If the issue is capable of review, uh, uh, re- repetition, uh, and yet the normal time frame uh, before the issue needs to be resolved is not susceptible to thorough judicial review, capable of repetition yet evading review is the way the doctrine is phrased, then we will we will not dismiss it because it's moot. 
and President Trump is eligible for running for reelection again. It's therefore capable of repetition that he will have a vested interest in getting these problems fixed. Uh, and it clearly evaded review because it didn't get any review. Mm-hmm. They should have taken it. And Justice Thomas's dissenting opinion just says, what are we waiting for? This is an issue that has to be settled if the American people are ever going to have any faith in their elections. We have an obligation to take it. And yet we've abdicated our duty. Where do we go from here? Well, um, there are a number of groups. I'm involved in several of them. Uh, some uh, very bipartisan groups that realized that we've got to simmer things down in the country. And the only way to do that is to have a thorough, honest, and transparent investigation of what went wrong, if anything went wrong, in the elections. And uh, I'm very encouraged by the by the folks that have reached out to me who disagree with me on these issues that they ask me to be part of these efforts. Okay. And so we'll see where that goes. And uh, the, the, the goal of such efforts, and I'm not going to identify any particular ones now until we're closer to being made, but, but the goal of such efforts is twofold. Um, let's look at uh, what the various allegations are, how many votes might have been affected if the allegations are true were were they enough to alter the results of the election or not all of that kind of on the on the on the front head on the 2020 election mm-hmm. and then on the back end what can we do going forward to prevent such things or even the appearance of such mm-hmm. things from happening in the future so that people can have restored faith in the election process. And that will be a set of recommendations to the various state legislatures. Okay. Um, and, you know, w- some of these recommendations have been around for a long time. They go back to after the 20, 2000 election when the Jimmy Carter, James Baker bipartisan commission on election reform had certain proposals, one of which was you've got to be extremely careful about absentee voting because it's just there is such a huge potential for fraud when i go into a polling place and have to produce my id in the neighborhood where i live people are observing on both sides of the political aisle and say that's not who he's claiming it to be i know jim joe smith that's not joe smith mm-hmm. right there is a, a built-in validation process in the polling place no such thing exists in the absentee voting, mm-hmm. right? Or so the mail-in, the mail-in voting, and so we have come up with um, what we hope is adequate substitutes. Um, and each state does it a little differently. In Wisconsin, like I said earlier, you have to put, mail in a copy of your voter of your ID so that they can check. Now, that's not proof positive that the person that made that photocopy is the person. Mm-hmm. But if I've got the vo- driver's license to photocopy, it's probably mine, right? Yeah. It might be my sister's. It might be whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's still some potential, but I minimize the risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, other states require uh, a witness, somebody that knows you, that sees you open the, uh, the ballot, sees you without watching how you vote, sees that you are the one actually voting, puts the ballot inside the secrecy envelope, and then mails it in. The voter has to sign, but the witness has to sign as well and put their address on. Mm-hmm. These are designed to be uh checks against potential fraud uh in, in, in uh where was the witness requirement i think it was michigan um they just dispensed with that <laughs> right and so these are the kind of th- troubling things now did they dispense with it because they thought it was too difficult with people having to get close together because of covid maybe 
Um, but you're removing one of the critical things that that state thought was necessary in order to protect against the risk of fraud in the absentee voting process. Mm -hmm. How many people took advantage of that? Hard to say. Um, but it undermines the confidence in the election mm -hmm. when it's hard to say. Definitely. Is there, I mean, we're at a point now that Joe Biden has been inaugurated. It, if we found out that the, that there was significant fraud, is is there a revote or, or where are we at on that? Well, so a, a couple things. There's, uh, courts rightly would be very hesitant at this point to overturn the results of the election. There are a couple of examples where after the, an election, and uh, the election was certified with one winner, and then the amount of fraud was proved, and it affected the results of the election, that the courts have ordered the election be overturned, and the person who should have been certified seated instead. This happened in Pennsylvania in 1992, a state Senate race. Um, the amount of fraud that occurred was enough to alter the election, and they could prove it. And because of the proof, the court revoked the certification, stripped the sitting senator of his right to continue in office and put the other candidate in office instead. Uh, that was Bruce Marks. He was my co-counsel on the second of the Sur Supreme Court uh, cases I filed. Um, another one occurred in North Carolina just in 2018. And there the State Board of Elections um, looked at the amount of fraud uh, on absentee ballot harvesting, which was illegal in that state, as it should be in every state, by the way. Um, uh, but it was illegal in North Carolina. You couldn't prove how those illegally harvested ballots were actually voted. Um, but it, the, the number was larger than the margin and therefore uncertainty. And so the court ordered a new election instead. So depending on what kind of proof you have, uh, if I can prove that um, uh, in in Wisconsin, 22,000 votes were shifted from Trump to Biden, and I can prove that, and the margin is 22,000 votes, then I could declare that Trump actually won Wisconsin. If all I can say is we've got 20,000 votes that were illegally cast and counted, but I don't know how they were voted, I, I just have now the number of uncertainty, and the right result there would be to call a new election. Okay. Um, or or, you know, when you're talking, those are those are a congressional seat or a state Senate seat. It's not the presidency of the United mm -hmm. States. It's hard to imagine we would we would implement such a remedy uh, at, at, at the at the presidency level, particularly if uh, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris had nothing to do with the, either the illegality of state officials or the fraud. Um, but we're the beneficiaries of it, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, uh, I, so it's hard to imagine that that even the Supreme Court would would either order a new election or um, order Trump to be seated instead at this point. Mm -hmm. But that means that we're largely focused on how do we cure this going forward so nothing like this ever happens again. Mm -hmm. Boy, you would think that that would be something that could unite most people here in the country. It's you would think so. But but if if there's one side that thinks they have gained partisan advantage on uh, on loose, loose election rules, they're not going to easily give up that partisan advantage, partly because of the amount of money that's involved. Going back to the very first conversation we right, had. Right. Yeah. And I tell people, look, you know, people spent a half a trillion dollars on this election. Do you really think 
if they're spending that kind of money, that there's not going to be some incentive to cheat a little bit around the edges yeah. enough to alter to make sure my half a trillion dollar investment actually pays off. John Eastman, Americans, our founding is is men of great character. Not perfect people. And women, by the way. Don't forget Abigail Adams. My wife will. (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, that's right. Men and women of great character. And that is inherent in the American idea. Again, not perfect people. None of us are perfect people. But this, just this inherent American idea that you don't cheat, that you have higher ideals, that you're people of virtue, that you don't try to steal things from other people. And... That's why I think it is so important that we get to this spot. And I think a lot of Americans feel like that, that where we can trust our elections. And Donald Trump, has, uh, has it's been really interesting, is one of his parting gifts, I think, to us in this, is he has brought, shed a light on so many different things. The big media industrial complex, the big education industrial complex, now this whole election integrity process. We, the American people, cannot not pay attention to this. Well, it's also the case. Look, um, in my Constitution seminar I'm conducting Mm -hmm. up in Boulder for the the current six weeks, once a week, um, uh, uh, I'll be looking at separation of powers in a couple of weeks. Um, the, the, The Congress is given power to legislate over certain topics and only those topics. The remainder were vested in the states. Uh, but the executive branch investing clause in Article 2 says the executive power is vested in the president, the entirety of it. And yet and yet what we saw for the last four years is the president trying to direct uh, an executive branch that is essentially on autopilot, quite apart from where the American people direct it to go. Mm-hmm that they consider themselves experts in their own field and not accountable to the president from whom they derive the only authority they have. Mm-hmm. And what we saw is just uh, routinely efforts by the deep state or the swamp or just the established bureaucracy, however you want to phrase it, uh, just simply ignoring or thwarting the elected president of the United States. Um, that means we no longer are giving our consent to be governed because we got unelected bureaucrats that are governing us instead of uh, instead of the results of elections steering the direction or directing the mm-hmm. course of government, uh, and that and that, that means the basic premise of our republic is gone. That you know, the legitimate governments are grounded on the consent of the governed. When the consent of the governed doesn't have any impact, then we're no longer a self-governing people. How do we get that back then? Well. Um, uh, I, I think I think what President Trump did by shining a light on some of this stuff has been a wake up call for a lot of American people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, seven, you know, despite the onslaught against him over four years, he still won at least 12 million more votes than he did four years earlier, um, which which means his message and his uh, shining the light on this corruption uh, uh, r- really was a wake up call for a large portion of the American people. And 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 if that's right, if there are 75 million people out there, um, that's a huge I'm not going to use the word army. Somebody will accuse me of trying to get insurrection. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a huge portion of the citizenry um, that are now aware and are watching Uh, and ultimately in a Democratic Republican form of government, you have to persuade the citizenry 
uh, to take back control of the direction of government. And I think one thing President Trump did, sometimes crassly, but one thing President Trump did was was provide that wake-up call that we needed. And it's inherent in each of us. Yeah. yeah. And that, again, is inherently American. By the way, it, and it, it doesn't have to only exist every four years in a presidential campaign. This, this kind of... Uh, uh, Careful watching of what happens should go on at the city council and the school board level. I remind people that the one machine that we've had been able to do a forensic audit of occurred because some clever lawyer up in Antrim County, Michigan, realized that way down ballot on that presidential ticket was a school board race that was within the margin of automatic recount. And they filed an election contest, which went to the local judge rather than the countywide court. Mm -hmm. And the local judge uh, issued an order giving them discovery over the machine. Little school board election. All right. And I think all of that happened under the radar because nobody was connecting the dots that this was the presidential election as well. And that gave us a great deal of information about the software and the and the uh, process of these machines. Now, that report is out there. There are people challenging that report. Um, but that's exactly the kind of investigation in full view that we need. The report may be wrong. Uh, you know, uh, counter forensic experts may be able to say, here's why you're wrong and come, come to some agreement. But those kind of discussions normally occur in one of two places. Uh, they occur in full adversarial process in the courts, an adversarial process that because of these uh, jurisdictional dismissals, we never got the opportunity to have. Or they occur in the academy with full, open, and honest academic and scholarly debate. This will be our segue into Boulder, right? Mm -hmm. That didn't happen because uh, because the academy is so uniformly on the hard left now that they move heaven and earth to, to shut down any possibility of conversation. And that's what happened to me at the University of Colorado. And that is a great segue. However, let's go to January 6th okay. first. Uh, January 6th, uh, there was the uh, breaching of the Capitol. You were at that rally. I, I actually had an eyewitness that was on the show that said that it was 350 to half a million people there, uh, people that were singing. They were, it, it, it was not trouble at all. I actually had another uh, interview that I did on the show where it was anecdotal. Uh, this, this guest's friends were there. They said that there was not one vendor's cart that was turned over. There was not one T-shirt that was stolen. So this narrative that it was these mad Trump supporters storming the Capitol, I find somewhat interesting. But you were there, John, so tell us about that. I was there and I spoke. In fact, I was the last speaker immediately before the president. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, some news account said it was about 10,000 people. That's laughable. Anybody that's familiar with them all, let me describe what I could see from the stage in front of the White House on the ellipse. Packed people uh, in the front rows uh, with chairs, like at a big, a big auditorium. Or imagine uh, the football field. Um, itself with with uh, folding chairs mm -hmm. spelled out. That was that was the kind of immediate uh, front area. Uh, beyond that, um, and beyond the the television camera stands, uh, was standing room, uh, shoulder to shoulder, um, from the White House across the Washington Monument all the way to the uh, the uh, tidal basin in front of the Jefferson Memorial. Wow! And and up the mall. 
west toward the Lincoln Memorial, about three-quarters of the way up. And I couldn't see because of the trees, but I assume about the same amount down toward the Capitol on the east side. That's about a half a million people, certainly a quarter of a million people, somewhere in that range. And it was peaceful, and it was friendly and prayerful and singing. And when Lee Greenwood comes on dancing, mm-hmm. um, uh, it was a typical Trump rally. Um, what we had going on two miles away at the Capitol, uh, which started uh, well before President Trump's speech ended, um, uh, was a t- two uh, principal different groups. One, uh, right-wing extreme militia groups who look for ways to uh, uh, delegitimize government. Um, and they were there. And we've you know now got video evidence and facial recognition and and uh, sworn complaints by peace officers bringing indictments that they were there with uh, with flak jackets and helmets and communications gear and um, uh, uh, what do you go, gr- grenades uh, not 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 explosive grenades but but um, uh, disruptive grenades okay. and those kind of things. You also had Antifa guys there um, and BLM folks there. And we've got video of one of them who turns out to have been paid by several news organizations to instigate (laughs) instigate uh, and try and get other people to join him Mm -hmm. in breaching the Capitol and get it all on film. So they had good coverage. We've got I've got the invoices of the meet CNN and others paying paying this guy. $35,000 $35,000 from CMN, if I, if I get the numbers correct, but, you know, significant amounts of money. And we've got video of him with a group of Trump supporters leading the charge. And, you know, and he's the one that throws in and breaks the window. And then he says, this is our MF and building. We got to take it. And some of the Trump people went in with him. I've never I've never argued there weren't any Trump supporters that in. But I have said some of the initial instigators were not the Trump supporters. And we've got this guy on evidence. And I ask people, look, at almost every Trump rally over the last five years, there have been a counter rally mm-hmm. of protests protesting the Trump people. Mm-hmm. And they have at times tried to uh, uh, egg on the Trump people mm-hmm. to respond in, in violent ways. So that mm-hmm. creates the narrative contrary to the overwhelmingly large, peaceful nature of his rallies. There was no Trump counter rally on the biggest rally he's ever held on the most significant rally he's ever held. Where was the counter rally? Well, we know for a fact, cause we've now got the Twitter traffic from the Antifa feed three days ahead of time by MAGA gear disguise yourselves as Trump supporters, and then wreak as much havoc as you can. I mean, we've got this stuff. Now, was Antifa the only ones doing it? No, you've got these right-wing militia guys as well. Was that the half a million people that were at that rally uh, over up at the White House two miles away? No. Did some of those people at the rally march down Pennsylvania Avenue or the mall to the Capitol to do what the president asked, which was, uh, patriotically and peaceably go down to the Capitol and let your voices be heard? Yes. I mean, and, you know, uh, uh, AT&T and Verizon have, have demonstrated the, the, the phone, you know, the, uh, but that started at about 1.30. People started moving down there. The violence in the Capitol started a half hour or 45 minutes earlier than that. Right. And so this narrative that we've been fed, that Trump summoned the half million and sent them down to breach the Capitol is just completely false. Um, 
And the more evidence we get on this, the more it's becoming clear. But it's also clear that there's a strong effort to try and shut down that kind of evidence. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting that, at least from just a, a layman's view of this, that that breach of the Capitol occurred just about at the same time that there was going to be a challenge to the electoral votes for Arizona. I thought that was very curious, John. Well, you know, um, one has to raise the question, who benefited from that breach? And those that didn't want to have any discussion about the legality of Arizona's votes, Georgia was up next, uh, Georgia votes um, wanted to even scare people away from making any objection or talking about the evidence. Mm -hmm. And so who benefited from the breach? Well, those that wanted to shut down that conversation. Right. Right. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit more about January 6th. And that is a conversation prior to that. You President Trump has really trusted you. This was a really historical thing that you've done. Tell us about the conversation that you had in the Oval Office. Sure. Uh, and I would normally not discuss a private conversation I had with a client, but I have received directly the president's permission to tell the truth about that conversation because the truth has not been presented in the New York Times or elsewhere. Um, so uh, after the 2000 election, there were several scholarly articles written based on uh, uh, somewhat ambiguous language in the Constitution, particularly in the 12th Amendment, about whether the vice president who presides over the joint session of Congress has any constitutional authority to refuse to count electoral votes that are fraudulently cast, even though they've been certified by their state officials. Um, and these scholarly articles uh, uh, some said absolutely he had that authority. Others have recognized that it is a significant constitutional argument, but ultimately not persuasive, right? Mm -hmm. And so scholars on both sides of, of the conclusion have recognized the legitimacy of the argument. Um, and, uh, and some people had shared those articles with President Trump. Um, including one by my good friend John Yu, published uh, in the Claremont Institute, with which I'm affiliated, their own, um, their own. It's not a blog; it's more substantive than a normal blog. But in their own uh, news outlet called the American Mind, he published uh, this in October, arguing that this is the role of the vice president. The language of the Twelfth Amendment says the, the the president of the Senate, which is the vice president, um, uh, uh, shall open shall in the presence of the house and the senate open the ballot uh, shall open the ballots in the presence of the house and the senate and the ballot shall be counted okay. right so it starts off with um uh, active voice the vice president opens the role of the house and the senate in that joint session is to be present in other words to observe mm -hmm. and then it says and the vote shall be counted shifts to passive voice so does that so so who counts them it's a passive voice well the only person that had any active role was the pre vice president mm -hmm. and so some have taken the only active role there is the vice president the house and the senate are just to be present to observe and therefore he must be the one that counts them as well and necessarily then he has to make some judgment about which to count and which not this is particularly the case uh, when there are two slates of ballots that have been submitted and certified, one, say, by the governor and another by the legislature of the state, as almost happened in Florida 
in uh, in uh, 2000, as happened in Hawaii in 1960, and has happened in four states in 1876. And so somebody has to make the judgment about which of those two competing slates should be counted. Okay. And so the argument goes, therefore, even though it's in the passive voice, the only active voice is the vice president, that the Constitution assigns the authority to determine which of those competing slates to count to the vice president. And the political check on that is the fact that he has to do it in the open, in the presence of the House and the Senate. And so nothing nefarious can go on when it's done in the light of day, Mm -hmm. is the argument. It seems odd to us that the Constitution would assign such a monumental, important task to somebody who's themselves quite likely to be one of the candidates. Because how many times has vice president been one of the key candidates for president? Mm-hmm. Um, but our Constitution, in a couple rare instances, assigns exclusive and final say to a political actor. We just saw it happen with the two impeachment trials. The final say on whether conviction on that impeachment was going to be had was not in the courts, but in the U.S. Senate. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a political body. The Constitution specifically assigned that role there. So the question is, did they assign that role to the vice president here? A credible argument can be made that, in fact, the Constitution does. Um, And so the president starts off with that part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Doesn't he have the ability to say these are invalid electors and uh, therefore either not count them or count the Trump electors instead. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, theoretically, constitutionally, there's support for that position. Pence asked me, do you think I can do that? I said, and this is just a very private conversation. Really, It's the president. It's the vice president. It's me. It's the vice president's general counsel and the vice president's chief of staff. Okay, the five of you, the the five of us. Wow. All right. And the vice president turned to me and says, do you think I can do that? And I said, whether or not you can constitutionally do that, the fact that the Republican legislatures didn't endorse or certify the Republican alternate slates means that you should not do that. That would be a disaster. Right. Uh, how- now, now explain that to me one more time. So so uh, on December 14th, the day statutorily assigned for the electors to meet and cast their votes in their states okay. in seven states. The Republican electors met as well. Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico. Okay. Uh, they met in a room in the state capitals as their own state laws require. You got to, you know, state laws spell out where the electors are to meet and when and how to go about casting mm-hmm. their votes. And so they met uh, parallel to the Democrat electors. Um, and the Democrat electors were certified by this election process in the state. The Republican electors had not been certified, but they met and cast their votes anyway in case the still pending litigations determined, like in Hawaii in 1960, that in fact they were the validly elected electors. Okay. Right? They met. In Michigan, they were prohibited from going into the Capitol by, by the governor's order of the National Guard, supported by the Republican leadership in the Michigan legislature, which is a travesty. So I think they met in a local pub, which is very originalist, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All right. But, but, I, but I, I, I told the vice president, I said, you know, uh, unless those state legislatures had conducted an investigations, determined that the certified Biden electors were fraudulently certified uh, and certified instead those Republican electors, I don't think prudently, even if you have this power, you should exercise it. But that then makes extremely important 
what at the end of the day the vice president was actually asked to do. And it wasn't to void the Biden electors unilaterally, as he claimed. It wasn't to certify the Trump electors unilaterally, as he claimed in his letter of of, uh, the morning of January 6th. It was simply to accede to requests by hundreds of state legislators in these states to delay things for a week so that we can finish our investigation and formally notify you whether upon further investigation the Biden electors were validly certified or whether they were invalidly certified. And they all raised significant amounts of evidence that called into question the validity of those certifications. And so what Vice President Pence ultimately was asked to do was simply delay the proceedings for a week. Why was that necessary? Why didn't these guys do this back in December? Well, they tried, uh, and their investigations were informal because the governors in those states, Democrat governors in several of them, but Republican governors in Arizona and Georgia, refused to call them into special session as they requested. And they, I argued that they had authority to call themselves into session, but, but their own internal counsel said, oh, you can't do that. Um, I think they were wrong about that because they're exercising a power given to them, the federal constitution, state procedures and their state law can't can't trump what the federal constitution says but nevertheless they all felt bound to only come back into special session if they were called into it by the governor the governors refused that first week in january they're now coming into normal session mm-hmm. um and they just and they sent letters to the vice president our our certified electors are false we can't validate them. We have conducted an investigation. We need another week or 10 days to finish up. And then we will let you know whether in our determination those Biden electors were properly certified or whether there was enough fraud in this election that Trump actually won it. Give us the week to finish our work. That's what the vice president was asked at the end of the day. You can watch my speech on January 6th before the half million people. I say exactly that. You can watch the uh, the president's speech an hour later, uh, and he says exactly that. Um, The vice president refused even that request because there's a provision, a subsection of the Electoral Count Act of 1887 that says once the session convenes, it can't be adjourned until the work is finished. And he said, I'd be violating I'd be violating uh, state the, the, the law. They had to really look for that one. Yeah, well, no, it's you <laughs> uh, said I'd be violating the law. I said, yeah, but if you're going to if you're going to accept illegally certified electors, you're violating the Constitution in a much bigger way. So the question is confronted with violating and shredding the Constitution and putting some guy in office who wasn't elected, arguably, mm-hmm. or violating this small provision of subsection 16 or 18 or whatever it is of the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which is your duty? It's to uphold and protect the Constitution. And I even gave them the example. Lincoln, uh, in dealing with the onset of the Civil War and trying to get northern troops down to protect Washington, uh, and they were being derailed in Baltimore by, by uh, southern sympathizers in Baltimore, Maryland, and he suspended the writ of habeas corpus to stop that from happening. And there's a constitutional question whether the president alone can suspend the writ of habeas corpus in times of insurrection Mm -hmm. or whether it requires Congress. Mm -hmm. He did it anyway. And he said, I have the arguable authority to do this under the Constitution because it doesn't specify only Congress can do it. But even if I don't have that authority, am I to let all the laws but one go unenforced? In other words, the whole Constitution be shredded, lest that one be violated. 
And his prudential statesmanship position was, no, I got to I got to give way to the lesser in order to protect the greater. And that Lincolnian statesmanlike argument is what I made to Vice President Pence about even if that subsection of the Electoral Count Act is not an unconstitutional infringement on your 12th Amendment power, um, you need to violate it in order to protect the broader constitutional issue here. I have always wondered about that with Lincoln. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was what he was asked. What he put out that morning of the of the sixth was false. The 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 continued repetition of that position in the New York Times and elsewhere uh, probably leaked by uh, his general counsel who was in that meeting uh, is false. Um, uh, He was asked at the end of the day, just delay things a little bit. And he refused to do even that. Astounding. I don't know what else to say about that. Then things got really interesting uh, out here in Colorado. Well, they did. And by the way, uh, uh, I think it's important to make clear that the attacks on me, uh, well, they began back in August when I, I, I've been doing work on the citizenship clause for 20 years, scholarly work, and pretty persuasive evidence of the original meaning of the citizenship clause was that automatic citizenship to people born on U.S. soil, and the, the, the language of the clause says, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, meant full and complete jurisdiction, not partial jurisdiction such as exists if you're temporarily visiting here. And, of course, applying that scholarship to uh, Kamala Harris when she gets named as vice president, uh, as I have applied that scholarship to anybody else who was floated as a candidate, like, uh, like uh, Nikki Haley, uh, address the issue with Ted Cruz's citizenship, all of these things been, been consistent. But because when I, it's parents that they were temporary visiting, okay. they, they were they were uh, the dad was still on a student visa. Uh, the mother's student visa had expired when and she this got is Kamala's parents, Kamala's parents okay. and her visa had expired in January when she finishes her Ph.D. Student visas, you know, you've got to you've got to exit the country within 30 days of, of mm-hmm. the conclusion of the studies when, for which you're here. She didn't do that. So she was here uh, illegally, it appears. Um, uh, right up to the time or just before the time of Kamala Harris's birth. But in either event, neither one of them had become green card holders uh, and certainly not citizens. And therefore, they were just here as temporary visitors or to use the language of the old 19th century debate, temporary sojourners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the, the drafters of that language were specifically asked, would this apply to temporary sojourners? And they said no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So now it was asked in the context of Native Americans who were not part of our political system uh, and it, because there wasn't any issue about immigration or illegal immigration at the time. Um, but but the answer they gave there is directly applicable to the question now. So I just applied the scholarship. Oh, that sent people off into a frenzy. I, I remember that. Yeah. And uh, and uh, with scurrilous things said about me, but that had tampered down um, until early December when I filed a brief on behalf of the president in the Texas original action case. And it all, you know, and they were looking for ways to get me fired, demanding that I be fired and whatever. Well, and let's explain. You uh, were selected to be the uh, professor of conservative thought and policy at CU Boulder for this year. And there are people that actually have gone out to finance this chair to try to bring some uh, diversity of ideas onto the campus. And here you, you're you hired, and then you are actually representing the 
the president at the Supreme Court, you would think people would say, we hit a home run here. Yeah, yeah. And yet the Denver Post calls it a failure, (laughs) (laughs) the failure of the hire this year. Um, uh, I think it was the Denver Post. It might have been the the Daily Camera. I get get them all confused. They're all been so in lockstep on the scurrilous charges. Um, But the job application and the announcement for the position actually says they want somebody who's highly visible nationally, in in either the scholarship or the actual practice of conservative thought. And, you know, my scholarship is you know, pretty highly visible. And now my practice of it was high. I mean, exactly. It's, it's a home run. It did exactly what the job was supposed to do. Um, but instead, uh, you know, so so when I file the brief on behalf of the president, they're demanding that I be fired to their credit. And the- there is what? Other people, other professors at CU, or? other well, it's 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 professors, it's graduate students, it's staff. I mean, they just try and get as many names on the petition that they can, and and in December, to their credit, the university official said he's representing the president. It, there's no grounds for firing him here, even if. You know, but then when the when the uh, January 6th speech and I spoke for all of three minutes. Okay. All right. I made three points in that three minutes. I said. We've got we've got clear uh, and admitted evidence that non-legislative officials changed election laws. That's unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. We've got evidence by supported by sworn affidavits of traditional vote fraud, such as dead people voting. And I've got sworn affidavits in Georgia and Nevada and elsewhere that support that. And then I said, and this is the one that really drove them bonkers. And I said, the forensic audit team of Antrim County, Michigan, has identified that ballots can be uploaded into, I called it secret folders, the audit calls it suspense folders, uh, and then grabbed, just like the old traditional way of grabbing extra ballots from the suitcase, like we saw in Fulton County, they can grab these ballots out of the suspense folder. Um, and and then check off in the voter rolls system, which is now all kept electronically, that people that hadn't voted had actually voted. And they told me, uh, and I'm in D.C. on, uh, of course, for the meeting with the president uh, in the Oval Office on the 4th, the special election in Georgia goes on on the 5th. Right. And I'm in the, the suite of rooms that it includes these forensic audit folks who are in D.C. as well. And they're and they're we're watching the returns from Georgia and they tell me based on what they learned from the um, the uh, the forensic audit in Antrim County that they learned that if in fact this is what's going on. And by the way, it doesn't have to be um, uh, uh, designed to be manipulated by any of the owners of the machines or the software. The fact that it can be hacked and done as well is sufficient. So, I, you know, just want to uh, uh, get that out there. But they said, here's what we will see if, in fact, what we learned in Antrim is going on in Georgia. We will see as you get close. You know how the their reporting numbers, 60 percent percent returned, 70 percent returned. As we get close to 100 percent, that number will stop. All right. And uh, and yet the total number of votes being reported will continue to go up. So if I if I've said I'm at 95 percent returns, I have to know what the denominator is Mm -hmm. in order to make that calculation. And if I keep adding votes to the numerator, how many have been counted versus what the denominator is? And yet the 95 percent doesn't change. It means that the denominator is being moved up as well. Mm -hmm. And that will be an indication that they're pulling additional ballots in and adding to the denominator. All right. And lo and behold, we're watching and we see that happen. 
And then he said, and the second thing that you'll see is the system will shut down for a couple hours so that they can then they got if they are pulling in ballots, those are ballots that weren't actually voted. And, and, And if I do an audit after the fact, I'll have more ballots than voters. That'll be proof of fraud. So I've now got to figure out some way to check off voters who hadn't voted as if they had voted. And and if you see the system shut down, it's running. It's it's doing that that, you know, kind of matching. We got so many voters we got to now identify as having voted. And what do we see about 1130 midnight? The system shut down for two hours. Now, there may be reasonable explanations that don't indicate fraud from that. But what I said was. What they learned in the Antrim County audit was these things are possible, and they saw it happening in live time in the Georgia runoff last night. Again, that may not prove to be true, but but I'm looking I'm I'm looking at forensic experts who say it, and predicted what we would see, and then we saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said that, you know, and just said, so we've got to get to the bottom of yes, this. Yes, we do. All right. Now now they may be wrong, and and uh, uh, but we need to get to the bottom of it. To know whether they're wrong or not, and if they're if they're wrong, to identify what the legitimate explanation for that is, and I said we've got to get to the bottom of it, um, and until we get an answer to that question, we're not going to have faith in our elections or so, something mm-hmm. like that. And and the person that's been asked to delay this thing so we can get to the bottom of this is the vice president meeting today. That's what I said. All verifiable, supported by sworn evidence uh, and expert uh, testimony and opinion. Uh, that sent the folks at CU Boulder off the rails. Uh, the chancellor of the university the next day sent out a campus-wide and public-wide. Uh, Eastman made these baseless claims without any evidence, and they were repugnant. I immediately sent a note to the director of the Benson Center, uh, under whose auspices I have this visitorship, and I said, I want you to know I've got sworn proof or expert testimony for every statement I made. And the next day, he sends out a campus-wide later saying Eastman never produced any evidence whatsoever. For And, and instead of responding to me and saying, can you send it to me, that would be very helpful, yeah. he just sent out a note saying Eastman doesn't have any evidence. Blatantly false. Wow. By the head of the Benson Center, whose role at the campus is to provide alternative views and have them discussed in a scholarly way on campus. And he joined the cancel culture to shut down any conversation by sending out something he knew to be blatantly false. Ouch. Yeah. And, uh, and I just sent him a note. I said, you know, uh, this is preposterous. And he said, well, you've not produced the evidence. I said, well, you didn't ask, but I can I can send you the links <laughs> to every single because it's all part of court records. I can send it. Well, you know, none of it's been, you know, sworn. I need people that would do it under oath. And uh, I said, well, they actually are under oath. <laughs> you, know? Wow. you know, so so this then becomes part of the narrative. And every time you read a newspaper article, it says Eastman put out baseless claims. They're not baseless. They're supported by sworn under penalty of perjury evidence. Um, they're admitted in many cases that state election officials ignored or altered state election law. Um, it, you know, in every single one of these things, they're backed up. Now, uh, maybe there are some reasonable explanations, but this is what the whole purpose of the Benson Center is, is to bring this um, counter viewpoint so that it can be vetted in a civil and scholarly and academic setting and we can get to the truth. One of the reasons we have a vibrant First Amendment 
that protects even false statements mm-hmm. uh, is that the way you can t- t- confirm whether something is false is by countering it and letting it go through the crucible of debate. I've even tried to publish an op-ed responding to all of this in the Denver Post, and I'm going to call them out on this because they sat on it for two and a half weeks. And ultimately, she said, the editor of the opinion pages said, I will publish it if you admit that you were wrong about the evidence. I said, but I'm, I, I may not I'm be not wrong. wrong about yeah, it. nobody's proved that I'm wrong. I said, that's a, that's a proposal. And so she said, well, you've got to at least give me the evidence. And I did. And she goes, well, I've looked at it all. And, you know, I've read a newspaper article attacking it. I said, well, you know, I said, my guys did this under oath. Did the newspaper article attacking it publish under oath? But they still refused to publish it. So I even, I don't have any forum to respond to the months long, you know, repetition of scurrilous things that have been said about me. Um, uh, this guy, even Ian Silveri, in the op-ed in the Denver Post, claimed that the riots occurred moments after I spoke. It was about two and a half hours later. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that significant? Well, Supreme Court precedent on incitement is very clear. It's got to be imminent. Two and a half hours later, and by the way, the notion that whatever I said in those three minutes would would incite that crowd of a half a million who were came all from all over the country to listen to President Trump to leave and go start a riot before President Trump even spoke. It's it's insane. And yet this claim is made that I did it moments. That's false. uh, That I myself incited the crowd. um, That's false. In fact, it's libelous per se, because accusing people of serious crimes is per se libelous. And yet the Denver Post published it. And they can be held liable for the defamation as well. Uh, so lots more to, to play out on those fronts. That is going to be yeah very interesting. And that's one of the reasons why I thought it, it was important to get together to do this podcast is because people need to know the truth. And uh, I'm just so thrilled to get to do this. What's your final thought right now, John Eastman, that you'd like to leave with everybody? Well, I, I, I think it's important that we look at all of the claims and that we look at it with an honest eye. Some of them are going to prove to be an exaggerated. And, I'll, and just to give you one example, um, uh, we, people have seen the charts where there are massive vote spikes all at once. Right. Now, there was a change in the election procedures this year in some of the big cities. Atlanta, all of the absentee ballots were co- counted in a central canvassing center rather than separately counted in their individual precincts. If Atlanta reports all of its absentees all at once, you're going to see a big spike. But if Atlanta had been reporting partial returns throughout the evening as it was counting those absentee ballots, and then you get a big spike, the big spike is pretty clear evidence of fraud. Right. So we need to investigate which of those two stories is correct. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? We looked at the time series data, not at the state level, which is easily available, but at the county level, except Georgia has taken down the time series data at the county level. Mm -hmm. Right. Making it more difficult to assess whether which of those two stories is true. That's the kind of thing we need to get to the bottom of. And it's not just looking backward. Uh, was the election, in fact, stolen or not? Um, but it's identifying areas of problems so that we can, going forward, uh, make sure we don't have this kind of um, chaotic assessment of the election returns that has at least half of the country thinking something was wrong here um, and and make legislative fixes to make sure it doesn't happen again. And also to prove that if, in fact, the vi- the spike that we see was perfectly reasonable given the procedures 
to let the Trump supporters know that, in fact, maybe the election wasn't stolen. And that will allow them to have some confidence that Trump just lost. Mm-hmm. But we it, it's important that we do it at that level of investigation so that both sides can have confidence that the conclusions drawn from the investigation are accurate and not phony. Otherwise, one side or the other is never going to refuse, is never going to accept the results of the election. And if we don't have elections that we can trust, then we don't have our constitutional republic. What can everyday people do about this? Well, um, everyday people need to get involved at their precinct levels. Um, We need a massive group of people making sure that at the next round of elections there are observers. Um, they need to educate themselves on on the process, uh, and they need to make, and 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 this has to be a combination of of volunteer boots on the ground, but also legal staff that can both train and then be available on a moment's notice to say my precinct folks are running these things through three times in the machine. And they're not letting us observe that, in fact, that they're running them through because they weren't counted the first time or whether they're just running them through. Mm -hmm. We need the legal staff to then go into an emergency injunction or TRO. That has to be much more comprehensively put in place before the 2022 elections, much less the 2024 election. Okay. Professor Eastman, Dr. Eastman, it has been a real honor to have this conversation. I think it's really important that people have access to your side of the story. So thank you so much for joining me for this Sounding Off with Kim Munson podcast. Kim, thanks very much for the important work you're doing, and thanks for including me in it. Well, most definitely. And my friends, this is Kim Munson signing off. God bless you, and God bless America.